Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. Welcome to Americans Watching the Footy. This is episode 84. I'm Ethan Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California. I'm Benjamin Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California, about, I don't know, a meter away from Ethan. This is going to be a lot shorter than our last recap because the games weren't as good. You say that now and then watch this turn to two and a half hours because you rant about Geelong. No, I'm going to keep that to be like a concise, angry thing. There is no passion. There is no aggression. Yeah, there's there's more to it than that. Although that was like one of the top comments on the uh, like one of the Instagram posts and just like the final score Instagram post. Yeah, that would do it. I mean, the games that start this round were just snooze fests, and it only picked up on Saturday and Sunday, really kind of halfway through the footy. Little snooze fests for me. I fell asleep during each of the first two, and yeah, I mean, you said that you'd struggle to stay awake for one of these weeknight games. And both. Yeah, I mean, you missed all the third and start of the fourth for the Bulldogs and Lions, and then you were out from the second quarter of the Friday nighter. And I really didn't miss anything that valuable, if I'm if I'm going to be entirely honest. I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but... I mean, the second half were better than the first. Would have been hard for them to be worse. Uh, we've seen some bad footy... When I saw how bad that Collingwood-Richmond game was in the first half, it made me think of the game, the, the draw they had three years ago. There was a game Geelong won against Collingwood in 2021 that was like, that was a terrible use of two hours and 40 minutes of my life. Like, even being on the right side of the outcome, it was so bad. This was round... Was this the round 11 one? The 61-51 game? Yep, round 11 of 2021. It was bad and just like I've never felt less from a game that my team won I felt more frustrated where there are like you know games where you play like shit and win but you've never felt just less emotion one way or the other from it yeah unless you count like you know games at the end of the season where like nothing's on the line like like the dead rubber from round 23 last year or like well I like just kind of driving the point home there but like I think of like the current San Jose Sharks three-game winning streak that nobody asked for. So, yeah, about that Thursday nighter. Where do we begin? I thought for sure Lions were going to win this game by, like, 30. They were going to take care of business. I I did only tip them to win by, like, 16, I think. Let me check. Yeah, I had them by 16. I think I had them by around 20, especially after I found out that Sam Darcy was playing VFL. And lo and behold, he kicked three goals in the first quarter. Yeah, the the Lions did not play well, and the Bulldogs played a better game. 
I'm not going to say everything's fixed with the Bulldogs, but far from it. If there's there's one thing that seems to be fixed with the Bulldogs, though, from that game, it's Jamari Hagen. Five goals from five kicks and shut up critics and racists everywhere. That was so cool. And just to see, you know, for someone who at times like his on-field play is shaky, where he's still kind of finding his place to see the way he carried himself and the way he spoke afterwards, it's like the on-field performance doesn't match the personality because he's like very confident and strong, whereas on the field at times he's been, I mean, I just don't think he's had a very defined role. Look who he plays for, but he found himself in that game. He was in full voice and you could tell that he really works his way into a lot of games. Once he gets that first kick to go well, his confidence builds and it seems to be kind of exponential from there. I think maybe also having Artie Jones alongside him helped a bit because the two of them are really close and he helped him get involved in the game a bit as well. Artie Jones, by the way, was an awesome interview at the end of the seven coverage. I saw most of that online because the US TV feed had cut off, but entertaining guy talking about his uh, being related to Jamara, actually, as well as the Krakauer family. What a fun player who just brought a much-needed spark to that team. You know, this team needs energy and some life, just to the fresh faces, and he provided that in the best possible way. Despite the fact that this game was not super fun, I enjoyed him. I enjoyed watching him celebrate his teammates' successes, especially. There was one where I think he had set up a goal and was celebrating before it even got kicked. Just like, he's good for funny. I remember also he got an early tackle on Cam Raider that helped set the tone. Yeah, that was that was a statement play. But look, for all the issues the Bulldogs have, their defense played much better. Ed Richards had a really nice game. Alex Keith as well. Keith is a guy that I've definitely criticized a fair share, and he stood up. And when Aaron Naughton did go back to defense, we saw it a bit more in the second half when they were trying to maintain the lead he did all right for himself and even though he did have a couple good offensive even though he did have a moderately good offensive impact I still want to see more center half back time for Naughton because that'll also give Sam Darcy room to really function and give Hugo Hagen room as well I also want to uh, mention that I thought Hayden Crozier played way better than last week but I mean hard not to play better so the final ended up Bulldogs 10-7-67, defeating Brisbane 7-11-53. The biggest thing, though, is that Brisbane couldn't do what they needed in the forward 50, whether it was setting up to get a good kick or the actual kicks for goal themselves. A lot of criticism against Hipwood and Dan Herbo. I think, I think Hipwood has probably copped more of it because he's been less involved so far. I think in that case, maybe we need to see bit more of a featuring role from Jack Gunston than we expected. Yeah, he's been a little bit... He's just kind of been there. He hasn't He hasn't done... Hipwood being there or Gunston? Uh, Gunston. Hipwood's just... Hipwood's been quiet, and Joe Danher's decision-making was not great. There was one where he tried to take a shot from, like, 55 when, he, when they had numbers forward. Yeah, there were a couple connections that were pretty obvious, but were clearly missed. And Gunston did get a couple goals on the run, and I thought that they were going to keep feeding him from there. This was in the later part of the third quarter. He had three in the quarter, but nothing really materialized in the fourth from that. We're really talking about individuals 
for a lot of this one because there wasn't much structurally that we really liked from either team. Another individual I want to note, Oscar Baker seems to have also injected good speed and just freshness into the lineup as well. I really liked his game, and the thing I liked most of all about him was he might not be the fastest guy like throughout the play, but man, when it's time for closing speed, whether it's to chase someone down or break away, he gets up to a next level. Then it's just like, as sort as he have that in him at the last moment, a sort of a sort of rising to the occasion that's just peculiar with how well it's often timed. He's got this ability to accelerate that it's fun to watch. And I'm glad he's playing regularly because he's a player that when he was at Melbourne, A, he was buried down the list. B, he was just someone I never really thought of. And now we get to enjoy him because he is an enjoyable player. I'm still far from convinced that either of these teams is really going in the right direction for now. Both have some pretty tough tasks this coming week that I think will help us judge them a lot more fairly. Brisbane's got the Thursday nighter against Collingwood and the Bulldogs a Saturday late afternoon contest at the G against Richmond. An undermanned Richmond, but still Richmond. And they've had some trouble against them lately. If you told me that the Bulldogs would only have four points after three rounds, I would say, yeah, that's fine. It's just you would have expected them to get the four against St. Kilda instead. If you told me the Lions would have had only four, I would have been disappointed, but it's like, okay, I mean, I could see it if the Bulldogs played well and Ann Port played well, but I would have expected them to have at least eight by now. So disappointing spot for them to be in. Darcy Ford had less of an impact in this one. He ended up being subbed out. I think there's just a lot that Brisbane still need to figure out with the with the newer players into the lineup. I think what they're dealing with is a problem you see in basketball sometimes, where there's just not enough balls to go around. Diggity. <laughs> there's all this talent, and guys need to figure out how to be in supporting roles and how to not be the main guy. And I think they have a lot of guys with the capabilities of being the main guy. I mean, yeah, the main guy, the superstar. Dunkley and Neil both were that in respect in the middle. Harris Andrews had another good game in the back. And Brandon Starsevich was all right in support. But there's a lot of other pieces that weren't quite there. I often think McKenna has, I often think Connor McKenna has tried to do too much with gaining ground. And while we're on the topic of Irishmen, I think somebody else needs to come in for Derek Joyce. Beaten in too many contests and a joint game high of five free kicks surrendered. So based on VFL performance, watch for James Mann or Jackson Pryor to come in there. Or maybe Ryan Lester, who uh, who is sort of a sleeper for me and has always been that kind of next man up in defense. But yeah, I think the Lions need to learn to share responsibilities a bit better, especially in the midfield, and then there needs to, and then maybe Hipwood needs to be more of a runner there, and Gunston needs to, sp and spend less time locked in, in the, locked in, in kind of those forward 30 meters where, I thought, where I thought we saw him a bit too much lately. I still think this team has so much talent that they can get it right, and I think Chris Fagan, and I want to trust Chris Fagan to do that, but yeah, they're a bit less polished than I thought they would have been at this point in the season. I expected Brisbane to be much better on on center clearances, and those went the Bulldogs' way pretty definitively. Actually, extremely definitively, twelve to four. Yeah, and that seemed to be 
kind of one of the consistent things in this game was just whether it was Bonimpelli or Trelor, they combined for nine of those 12 center clearances for the Bulldogs. And just the clearest way to neutralize Brisbane is by taking their midfielders out of that sort of 50-50 action and bounces are certainly that. And also, I liked what Daisy Pierce noted during the broadcast that the Bulldogs surrendered intercept marks, but they then filled the corridor to prevent Brisbane from rebounding. And with all the speed and depth that they that the Lions have in the midfield, the kind of flooding the center square might be the right way to go. The Bulldogs midfield talent is pretty insane, and it was on display in this game. And that's something that they should be able to count on moving forward. Yeah. Bonapelli led the way. He seems like he'll be getting the three votes from this one. One point, 28 disposals, eight clearances, including four from the center and 543 meters gained. Trelore also had 28, nine clearances, five from the center. Those two have become a really strong tandem in there. And it feels weird seeing Bailey Smith not being as important in that in that respect, but kind of freeing him up to play a bit more forward of center into that half forward group has helped facilitate some of his better action as well. Other high disposal getters, Tom Libertori with 29 and nine tackles. Always love the pressure he brings. It tends to be the guy that instills the pressure in the rest of the dogs midfield. And then that kind of spreads into their forward and back thirds as well. Jack McRae and Bailey Dale with 30 touches each. Offensively, we mentioned we liked Oscar Baker's work. A goal from 18 touches and 611 meters gained. He actually gained the most ground in this game. And on the defensive side, Ed Richards ventured forward at one stage, got one behind, but 25 disposals and 11 intercepts. 11 intercepts as well for Alex Keith from 21 touches. And Tim English did that sort of full field work that we expect. In addition to his 31 hitouts, 16 disposals, and 8 marks. When the Lions had to sub out Darcy Ford to try and shore up their defense with Noah Answorth, it just let English play even more freely. Lions stats, only a couple of Lions to really get all excited about. You got Lockie Neal, a goal of behind 31 disposals and eight clearances. He held his own against the big-time dogs midfielders, as did Dunkley. Josh Dunkley still weirds me out. Like, when I was organizing the stats for this game in our notes, I had put Dunkley next to the Bulldogs players initially. Uh, 24 disposals and nine marks, and Harris Andrews, 21 disposals and 16 marks. A lot of the time, he's had to be a one-man show in defense just because he doesn't have nearly as good support. And until the Lions really figure out what the system is back there defensively, I want them to keep trialing different guys who are doing well enough in the VFL to merit selection. You've got some depth there. I mentioned some players earlier. I want to see if they can be those proper supports for Andrews. Also, forgot to mention earlier, Daniel Rich was out for this one. I thought Kadeen Coleman would have been able to offset Rich's absence a bit with what he's shown kind of playing taller than his height in terms of intercepting and also the necessary starting of play from the back, but he just didn't take things on as we saw him do much last year. Was he just being tentative in his first game back? Is there a confidence issue there? Not sure what it is. If the Lions are going to get to where I think they're totally capable of, he's going to have to be better. You thought that was a rough one to watch, especially in the first half? How about Collingwood and Richmond combining to kick 4-13 in the first half? This was just not a good game. It's too bad because it's two really strong teams. It was just it was just bad conditions for it, too. Conditions didn't help. Richmond's injuries didn't help. Yeah, it, it had rained all afternoon, so slippery conditions were given. There was still some, some mist, I think, right up to around game time, but 
Great crown given the weather, over 85,000. And it's just unfortunate that that was the, uh, that was the show they saw. Yeah, there were probably, I forget which game it was in reference to. I had seen on Twitter someone saying, like, you know, or you know what, I think it might have been the Cats-Suns game. Like, someone is watching their first AFL game and this is what they're getting. It could fit for that too, but at least for that, I mean, place was rocking. It's just they didn't have much to, uh, much to be excited about. I mean, the third quarter was the most exciting, I would say, when scoring finally picked up because Collingwood managed to kick straight and teams combined for, wow, seven goals. Yeah, seven goals was the high for a quarter in this one. I'm not someone who automatically believes higher scoring is better, but when there are so many just straight up misses and behinds, though, it was a relief to see just some shots finally go the right way. Yeah, I think but my my take is you can have a good game without a lot of scoring as long as there's action. But a game with such a high percentage of behind to goals is usually not very exciting. Because, like, look, scoring plays aren't necessarily exciting. Look at, you know, one-yard touchdown runs. Think about touchdown vultures now. But, yeah, behinds, unless it's, you know, a player who's a main character blowing a shot, just usually isn't the most exciting thing. And because there was so many behinds, the scoreline kind of flatters Richmond because they were outplayed for the majority of the contest. Final score on the Oval was Collingwood 815-63, defeating Richmond 7-749. Expected score, just considering shots, had this as a little larger margin that ended up being, had it as around 76-54, to but I thought it was more lopsided than that. But I mean, Collingwood was was outplaying them in general. They were swarming around the ball in the defensive 50. Billy Frampton had another good game and ended up winning his 1v1 against Tom Lynch after struggling a little bit early on. Nathan Murphy with another strong game. And I think he just gets underrated. Maybe it's because people think he's Darcy Moore at first before they look more closely at his number. But Murphy, again, like he was against Geelong, really strong, drifting off his 1v1 and making impactful plays. In the midfield, Jordan Degoe and Josh Dacos had maybe career games just as pure midfielders. They were really the headliners of arguably the most complete positional group in the league. And look, it's it's a shame these teams don't get to face off again during the home and away season because you'd love to see them play with a healthier Richmond in better conditions because it it's the sort of thing that should lead itself to be, you know, an instant classic. And you'd also want to see a healthier Collingwood because Mason Cox ended up being out for this one, had a hematoma on his spleen. I thought it was on his hip. That was reported first, but John Ralph said it was bleeding on his spleen. Well, I know we can find a good source on this in the next few days. Yep. That source being Mason himself on his own show. Yeah, but also, after Collingwood had gotten some control of the game in the third quarter, Darcy Cameron suffered a high-grade MCL sprain, which puts him out for six to eight weeks. He had been playing really well, I thought. So that, in general, these first three rounds, yes, he had been. That's a big blow. So it left the Ruck hierarchy to be Dan McStay and then, believe it or not, Ash Johnson over Billy Frampton. I think they were just valuing Frampton in his defensive 1v1, and look, Ash Johnson can make anything exciting. He can jump on players' shoulders in the ruck. Collingwood just had the pace in this one. From the fresher in the back, 
through to Goey and Josh Dacos in the middle, obviously Nick getting involved as well. And later on when Richmond were starting to get a little bit of momentum in the mid-fourth quarter, I just thought they weren't moving enough to be able to turn the tide in time. And sure enough, I was correct. And it ended up being pressure that helped close out this game. Pressure in both 50s. Jack Crisp catching Jack Ross holding the ball and then scoring from beyond 50. And then after Morris Riley Jr. took advantage off a free kick, Braden Maynard caught him as well. I just want to mention, though, this game could have been over in the first quarter easily. Collingwood kicked 2-6-18 to a single goal to Richmond in the first. A lot of really makeable shots. Ash Johnson with a couple of them. This could have been, like, easily you know, 30-1 after a quarter or something. Actually, those Johnson behinds were early in the second quarter, but after that, I noted that the X score, just from the rolling tweets, was 45-2.5. to two and a half. Ethan just kind of widened his eyes at that one. It's just kind of like, kind of a blank stare type reaction, if that matters to any of you. Yeah, I just don't think the conditions did much to suit Richmond's game. Samson Ryan had had a really nice showing in round two, and he couldn't ever get into it. The conditions weren't right for an extra tall, and so Noah Cumberland came in. Cumberland, though, showed that he needs to be in the 22, even when Dustin Martin's back in. He helped energize things at the start of the second half. They helped start two goals in the first three minutes. Quieted down after that because the whole game ended up being pretty quiet, but just that first alone was enough of a sign. Look, we've already given this game much more attention than it probably deserved. All right, stat time then. Jordan Ngoi, three behinds, 35 disposals, nine clearances, 597 meters, 10 coaches votes, and rightfully so. Nick Dacos, 33 disposals. Tom Mitchell, 30 disposals. Jack Crisp, 25. Steel Sidebottom, 24. Collingwood had 59 inside 50s to Richmond's 40, which I think just that the teams combined for less than 100 says something, and that Collingwood had 19 more says that they were way better, and the scoreline just doesn't quite reflect that. If, you know, at the very end of the year, they finish a spot below someone because of percentage, point to this. Oh, I was wanting to see what Josh Dacos' stats were quickly. I mentioned Josh Dacos had a really nice game as well. Had 28 disposals, 7 clearances, and a goal, 507 meters gained. I really thought he and Degoe were the ones leading the midfield in, in this one on Friday. Kind of surprised that his performance granted him nine fewer AFL fantasy points than Nick. I guess that's just what volume possessions in the back do. He was good, though. They're just, there's something about this Collingwood team right now that I'm struggling to define that makes them so good, even though, like I said, they wasted some opportunities in this game that would hurt them against a healthier team or in different conditions, but... This Collingwood team just has kind of that right mix of ages, and even though I liked what even more of the younger pieces were doing last year, bringing guys like Tom Mitchell and Dan McStata really fill out the rest of the team to make it clear that, that they're in a real win-now mode, I think that really helped, and McStay's going to have a really important role these next few weeks, with Cox still maybe a week or two away, and Darcy Cameron having his MCL issue. So I'd imagine McStay will be that first-rate ruck, and Frampton and Johnson will continue to have that secondary time. Also think that maybe this speeds up Oscar Steen toward 
making his AFL debut. He was a pickup in the supplemental period from South Australia. They're going to lose a lot with Cameron out, though, not just because he do hit out, but because he's a skilled player all over the ground who really uses his size well. And when I think about Frampton kind of using his size well in his matchup as well, that's why I think he's going to end up being one of those secondary guys there, probably above Johnson in the long run, especially if an opponent's tall forward stock isn't as strong. Saturday kicked off with the Tasmanian tussle, which I feel like it's a very typical like early Saturday game. Seemed like you get a lot of Launceston early games in particular. Yeah. Um, Hawthorne won this one, 11-14-80 to North Melbourne's 9-7-61. I was really excited about this game. We knew that Jai Simkin would be out, obviously, because of his one-game suspension for striking Caleb Sarong, who clearly wasn't phased by that this round. More on him when we get to the last game. But I thought, okay, really time to focus on Luke Davies' Uniac in the midfield. He can really shine here. Oh, he has calf tightness and was out late to the warm-up. And that kind of made this game much less watchable or much less enticing. There was, it was certainly watchable, just not not nearly as gripping because even though it's Hawthorne with how they started the year, you tell at that point, okay, they're going to win this. Now, I was thinking of it not as like less exciting, but it's just it was going to be a tough game for North to win, which you know, if you're North and someone said you're going to be 2-1 and one at this point, you would have expected Frio to have been the loss, not this one. But when you're missing those two, you're in a tough spot. And combine that with Jaden Stevenson having played one of his best games a week earlier and wouldn't expect him to string together two good games. It's just, he never does. This was not a game that they were ever going to be in position to win. They really played a bad second quarter. At one point, Hawthorne kicked five straight goals. North did get... One from Cam Zerhar just before the half, where I thought they weren't going to have a chance to get another shot away. They ended up cutting it, though, all the way down to 62-59 to 59 with 11 and a half minutes left of another Zerhar goal. But from there, North and Hawthorne did pull away. Their work rate was higher in general, and you saw the benefits of three of their inclusions, all three of them. Harry Morrison helped complete things. Sort of a glue piece at times. Jack Scrimshaw venturing forward was strong. Again, Hawthorne needs forward depth with Mitch Lewis out and Chad Wingard still on the sidelines. Dylan Moore starred, but Scrimshaw being in was strong. And then, welcome back, Tyler Brockman. Missed all of last season. Played about... There was an energy there that wasn't there for the first couple games for Hawthorne. Did they just come into this actually thinking, okay, this is actually winnable? I don't know, this looked like a more young, spirited team that look, they know they're not super talented and that they're not going to be winning a ton, but they definitely had the right approach. And I want to credit them for finishing a game off where if looked for a bit like they might have run out of gas, as they tend to do a lot last year, particularly on the long ground in Launceston, which definitely inflated some meters gated numbers. And in that respect, probably helped with some fantasy points. But Hawthorne did really control this game. In the first half, they were plus 56 in marks and plus 33 uncontested, and they were getting more numbers to the ball. I wasn't surprised that North was able to draw themselves back into it, but once Hawthorne had that six-goal advantage, I thought you couldn't Seth Davis-style Sharpie it in, but I was starting to pencil in the, this one for Hawthorne. When North did make it a closer game, though, was no coincidence that it came from pressure. 
they say it repeatedly. It's almost like the the Ratatouille Gusto thing where, where Gusto said anyone can cook. Any team can pressure. And especially when these are teams that we expect to be in the bottom six when it's all said and done, you want to see that pressure from the start of things. Had North had that same level of pressure from the beginning, I think we would have had a more competitive game that Hawthorne probably still would have won just because of the absence of Davies, Uniac, and Simpkin leaving too much for the rest of the Roos to make up. But I think it would have been a much more compelling contest all the way through. And when North were playing their best, the two guys stood up in four and a half contests were Will Day and Dylan Moore. Day just had one point, but 29 disposals, 11 marks, and gained 470 meters. The 11 marks is what really stand out to me. He just worked through pressure and one-on-ones really well, as did Moore, who kicked 2-1 from 26, had 12 marks and gained 528 meters. Combine that with Brockman's 3-1, and you had all the all the firepower that you needed in this one. And I was surprised by that because Carl Amon was playing further back in the first half. Almost thought he was sort of a, a slingshot player by foot more than by hand, but he gained 582 meters from his 24 disposals. Just a different look for him, and one that I guess worked. Other big stat hauls for the Hawks. James Sicily leading the way in the back. Nine intercepts, 18 marks, 28 touches. Josh Warden, 27. Blake Hardwick, 23 and 11 marks. Jack Skirmshaw had a goal from 25 and 9 marks. Jai Jai Newcomb had scored 1-1 from 22 and had 504 meters. Just a very involved game for him as normal, and... Another one who really helps instill pressure. He had five tackles as well. Cam McKenzie had nine. Love seeing the younger players get involved like that. A couple younger players I've really noticed in terms of tackling, those being McKenzie and Ruben Jinby for the Eagles. Connor Nash also had six tackles. Not great in front of goal, just two points there, but 24 touches and an efficient mover of the ball. I noticed he's pretty tall. That was like my biggest takeaway of this game, that Connor Nash is tall. Yeah, I had never really noticed that about him, but like he's 6'6", 197 centimeters. Yeah. The other things I noticed, let's see. I was surprised to learn that Fergus Green is not Irish because his name sounds very Irish. I think he's been pretty solid throughout the year, not like anything above and beyond, but just a solid player that you're going to need as you build a foundation moving forward. And he's 25, so not like he's old yet. He's one of the older guys on this team at times, believe it or not. And then it's clear James Warble, who, by the way, is Ryan Meyer's friend, is way healthier this year. Also want to note that Sam Frost had a better game of defense, 12 intercepts there. Had to work into this game a bit after a really poor first couple rounds. Looking at North's stats, I was just mostly disappointed that Harry Sheasel didn't get to 30 again. I think he could have been the first ever to have 30 in his first three games. He had the worst game of his career with 26 disposals, 8 intercepts, and 510 meters game. And he still got me, I think, 109 points. And that's the worst game he's played. Luke McDonald, 20 disposals, 8 marks, 519 meters. Cam Zerhar, I really liked his game because he wasn't just, you know, pushing people around in front of the goal. He kicked two goals on 20 disposals. He had eight marks, gained 518 meters. And Griffith Loeb, who as of now is suspended for next week for his hit on Will Day, though that is being appealed, he had 16 disposals and 11 intercepts. Imagine North actually having a healthy back line with him 
and Ben McKay in it. Now, of course, Ben McKay is not going to play next week because there is only one McKay and North are playing Carlton in the Good Friday match. Looking at that Logue bump on day, I mean, he did go past the ball. He clearly chose to bump. Looked like principal point of contact might have been a little bit below the head. I mean, I can understand where the discipline comes from. North only used 18 interchanges in this game, and it's not like they had guys get hurt. I guess it was just they wanted to try using guys for really long periods of time and then sitting them for long periods, or maybe this... Could this have just been a mistake by the stat people? Because this is... I, we, I don't know. Yeah, the AFL website has North for 18 interchanges, and I don't know whether I should believe it. I think it's correct. I mean, I think it is too. If you just look at the trends for, for time on ground, it makes sense. Someone tweeted it asking Swamp about it. Yeah. You know what? Not a bad thing to test. Just kind of seeing what kind of stamina players have on the longest ground in the game. It just seems weird that you try it after a couple of wins instead of, you know, when you're looking to shake something up. I'm just shrugging. You know what else I was shrugging at? The goal-kicking form between the Giants and Blues. 30 behind, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to thank the umpires in this game for remembering that I had Carlton covering. They were favored by nine and a half, and they won by tab. How much did you win off of it? Like $13, I think. I can't seem to find any record of it online, but in Fairly Odd Barons, which very good cartoon, we've probably referenced it on a couple episodes. Not sure, actually. We just seem so quick to make the SpongeBob references that I don't know if we have. But it was like number two to SpongeBob, but um, one episode... Timmy's dad gives him the I made my dad eat butts richer award. And I'd like to give the umpires for this game the We made Ethan 13 bucks richer award. Do we also thank the umpires for taking our attention away from the terrible kicking form and the fact that there was a single goal in the third quarter? Actually, the thing is, this game started out with really great pace. A nine goal first quarter. Yeah, I was looking around like, Whoa, okay, I'm I'm intrigued. I'm gonna just just good pace going both ways. It was like, all right, I'm gonna do Wordle real quick here because it the new one comes at midnight. This was just after midnight. And it was like then I'm gonna get back to this and then it just dropped off really quickly. The Giants transition from the defensive fifty tailed off. Colton's pressure hadn't been present up to that point either, which hadn't helped. The teams combined to kick 4-7 in the second quarter and then 1-9 in the third. And Carlton figured out how to stop some of the orange tsunami that Adam Kingsley has been trying to restore in the latter part of the second quarter. They were really starting to pressure properly. Unfortunately, Matt always went down with a left hamstring injury in the first quarter. That brought Lockie O'Brien on at quarter time. You know, he missed the bus before this game. Did he just, like, oversleep for something? I don't know. He missed the bus. But O'Brien had been really useful to Carlton as that sort of energizing sub with the wing runs that he provided in the first couple games. And because he was brought on so much earlier, you could see the impact of him not having fresh legs in the fourth quarter. And always being out was also disappointing because he had already kicked two goals at that point. 
and all of Carlton's small forwards got involved. Jesse Motlop was a focal point throughout this contest, and unfortunately, at the end, he ended up getting the 50 that still has everybody talking. At least after whatever the fuck that was in the third quarter, things picked up a bit. The Giants got a couple goals. They had really strong pressure helping them along the way. The Fox footy pressure gauge had the Giants in the elite range at 210, while Carlton just hadn't managed to have consistent pressure all night. They were in the 160 range at that time in the in the poor area. Toby Green managed to get one of his rare wins against Nick Newman. Newman was phenomenal, by the way, in that 1v1. I did not expect him to match up so well against Toby, but he just cut him off really well. Nine intercepts against Toby is no joke. Yeah, this is really the first game I can think of where Nick Newman was like the star of the defense in quite a while. Oh, Newman. But Toby did get that goal. And then a couple minutes after Brent Daniels gave the Giants the lead, the big controversy came in. It looked like Henry McKay had been caught holding the ball. There was no free kick awarded. Corey Durden missed a shot. And then after that, Stephen Canelio was called for a descent 50 and apparently asking how there wasn't a free kick and putting out your arms is enough for that. I thought we left that in 2022 and my eyebrows were raised and his probably were as well. I think his eyebrows raised themselves. I, I like to believe they're sentient. Probably, honestly. But if you can't simply ask why there wasn't a call, and especially if you're in leadership for the team and, you know, you're the right person to be asking that question, just why is dissent being clamped down on so much? And why is the head of umpiring like, yup, leave it up to the umpire's discretion like that? This was one that, like, he didn't say anything wrong. He didn't try to show anybody up. This should not have been, this should not have been anything. Well, guess what? Jesse Motlop gave Carlton a two-point lead after that, and the Giants scored one more point from there. They ended up kicking 9-10-64 to Carlton's 9-20-74. Yeah, this was, this was difficult to watch. It didn't help that Blake Akers clearly had a bagged-up shoulder, and he was one of their stronger players in round two in particular. He was also handed a one-game suspension for a bump on Brent Daniels, and that one's getting appealed. So, more MRO to watch there. Yeah, it's funny the thing tried to appeal this if he probably wasn't going to play next round anyway, but I kind of like it where it's like, fuck you, only we can decide if he doesn't play. You're welcome for the rage soundbite, Rudy Edsel. What the fuck? Um, just a tough watch when the scoring shots were that poor. And that really took away the focus from some really strong performances, especially on Carlton's end of things. Patrick Cripps really controlling the midfield. Adam Chera doing well running alongside him. Again, Nick Newman, of all people, shutting down Toby Green. Yeah, Newman played great. This was probably the first time I can think of where I can say, like, oh, he was definitely Carlton's best defender. Normally, I, normally you'd think Jacob Wiedering or a healthy Mitch McGovern or maybe Adam Saad. Woof with just how much he controls the footy and how much he bounces it. But in a pure defensive context, Newland starred. I had seen good one-on-one stuff from him in the past. You wonder why I named him my sleeper for Carlton for this year. I was really happy to see this performance from him. As I mentioned earlier, he had nine intercepts. That was part of an 11-mark effort, 24 disposals, and gained 461 meters. No shock that Saad gained more ground at 512. 23 disposals and 11 score involvements for Saad. And I don't know how many bounces, but probably at least a couple that were early that I forgot to mention here. 
Sam Doherty really helped drive things. One of the highest fantasy scores for the round. A goal, 39 disposals, 10 score involvements, 10 marks at 517 meters. A real full field player. And I think with Walsh out, we're seeing more of his work in the forward two thirds as well. Yeah, this is a Carlton midfield that's still without Sam Walsh. And that's scary when you have Chera Racky up 28, Crypt Racky up 42, 13 clearances and 11 score involvements while gaining 563. Thinking, you know, he doesn't have to do this every game, especially when they're in even fuller health. He controlled this one. Akers still had 21 touches and gained 518 meters, even though he wasn't of the best health. And also a better game out of Jack Silvani after he was questioned a bit in the first couple rounds. A goal from 19 disposals at 9 marks. So yeah, a lot of good individual games to take from this one for Carlton. It just didn't seem to come together for the whole team, because if you look at these sorts of stat lines, but if you don't see the final score, you think, oh, Blues carried this one with ease. This is more fitting of like a 40-point Carlton win than a 10-point one. I will say this. I know we talked about that call. I think Carlton win even without it, as do I. I don't think they cover, though, so uh, thanks. Yeah. Stats for GWS. Tom Green, 34 disposals, 7 clearances, 626 meters. Lockie Ash, 30 disposals, 524 meters. Josh Kelly, a goal, 30 disposals, 9 tackles, 560 meters. Stephen Canelio, a behind, 29 disposals, 516 meters. And two very active eyebrows, I would suppose. Lockie Whitfield, 27 disposals, 420 meters. Anthony, okay. Isaac Teehee Cubbing, 22 disposals, 471 meters. And Sam Taylor, even on a pretty quiet day, still got 10 intercepts. Also want to mention that Jack Buckley did all right for himself against Charlie Kernow. Charlie was quiet. Offensively, just this game was quiet. And I don't know, this this game deserved better kicking because it would have actually given a decent contest for a lot of it. Just kind of a better look overall, I think. It was a hard played game. And I think just the inaccuracy took a lot of the shine off of it. And about the, the umpire descent thing, just... It being so much up to the umpire's discretion, I mean, I get that every game and every interaction calls for different reactions, but there's got to be some common ground on which the umpiring group has to agree and say, okay, players can ask about calls. You know, there's there's got to be something that, that puts it over the line, whether it's certain words being said or just some sort of persistence about it, I'm not sure. You should be able to ask, you should be able to have a dialogue, you know, maybe you you can frame it better as like, hey, what did he do there instead of whatever he said, which was also totally harmless. How is that not a freak? Yeah, you, you know, maybe just instead just say like, hey, what did he do wrong there? But it's it's pretty fragile on the umpire's part to go and penalize that. Or because it was Cornelio, would we say it's fragile? It must be Italian. I have no idea if A Christmas Story has any cultural imprint in Australia whatsoever. But amazing just how many quotes come out of that movie. That movie is on for 24 hours straight from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day here on one channel. Well, well, well it's because there's the Western feed of TBS as well. So technically, technically it's 27. I thought I like sometimes jumped between TBS and TNT. I don't know. Anyway, the point is this movie's on like all day on Christmas. We're bored. We have nothing to do. And it's just kind of on in the background. So over the course of the day, you get the whole movie. Harry Sheasel, Todd Goldstein, if you don't do it already, there's an idea for you for Christmas Day.
Okay, how about some actually exciting footy? This thing killed 150th anniversary game. And a great ceremony before this, too. Actually doing a good job to really focus on the people behind the club, which is kind of necessary given they've only won a single flag. And they did do a nice bit, of course, for that 1966 team. But I liked it. It wasn't just a celebration of the 66 team. That's something, you know, you've got your various anniversaries for that you can do stuff for. This was about the whole club. Yeah, it, it was much more complete than Essendon's as well. If you remember Essendon from last year, and I'm not just bringing it up because they were St. Kilda's opponents, there was much more about more recent generations, the 93 and 2000 premierships in particular, making a big deal out of James Hurd being there. No, this was much more complete. They highlighted certain players, of course. Tony Lockett with a very nice ovation in particular. Surprised how thin he is, by the way. He an okay elf? Hope so. Interesting just seeing how players just change shape, I guess, from the time their playing career ends. You can really see it in um, American football linemen in particular. Like, I remember meeting um, Baltimore Ravens Super Bowl center Matt Burke and just thinking, wow, you must have lost triple digits in pounds already just a few years later. If I was on Bounce, there would be some sort of joke about Jason Dunstall. Oh, yeah, he's he's everywhere on social media. And I'll just say it for him. Kick a drop punt. But about the game itself now. So this was the first time since 1974 that the Saints and Bombers played each other, having both started around in the top three. That's kind of amazing. Like, you'd think somehow at some point that they'd be good at the same time or that they'd be at, like, at the top of things at the same time. Like, just by chance, you know, even if it was, like, round two or something. Oh, yeah, the Saints got out to a 34 to nothing lead. Yeah, at that point, I was like, all right, I'm just going to focus on showdown. Um, I mean, it was very valued to focus on showdown 53. We'll get to that after our break. Saints got seven shots on goal from their first seven inside 50s. They were marking easily 1v1. Mason Redmond gave up a couple 50s. They looked just in control. They were up 34-7 to at quarter time, maintained a three-goal lead into the fourth quarter. I mean, I guess that's where you really pick up this one, but before that, just should note just some strong individual performances. Mason Wood has continued his blistering start to the season. I'll just say it now. Only player to have at least 20 disposals and one goal in each of the first three rounds. Mason Wood! He's been... Awesome. Is, is this just kind of Ross Lyon unlocking him in a way that Brad Scott couldn't at North? I don't know. I think it's just he's playing his absolute best right now. He turns 30 in September, but uh, he did play for the Geelong Falcons. Oh, shit. We need all the midfield help we can get. Between him and Darcy Parrish. But Wood was excellent again. Jack Higgins played a smart game. Gone to the right places for a lot of scoring opportunities, as did Dan Butler. You don't usually see Higgins and Butler firing on all cylinders in the same game, but they certainly did in this one. And then defensively, Callum Wilkie held down the fort. He was the best defensive player of this round by a long shot. I think he got the three votes for the Golden Fist. If not, Dicko, you're objectively wrong. Once Essendon brought on their sub, Nick Hyde, yeah, Hyde getting into... AFL action for the first time this year as a sub. They were clearly willing to move faster. Managed to actually draw even with about 15 minutes left off of a couple really nice Jai Caldwell kicks. At that point, I think, Ethan, you just texted me Essington. Or or actually, did you text me just Saints then? Because it would have been a very Saints thing 
to blow a 34-0 lead and just sink in your anniversary game. I just remember that caught my attention after after I had, you know, I really haven't been looking at this game much at all. From like 34-0 up until this point, I was like fully locked in on Showdown with never giving any attention to this. I was going between two screens the whole time because just I was covering this game. We decided on it for our overlap because you wanted to stay up for Showdown this year. It was it was great. Oh, it was worth it. I'm glad I've gone back and, you know, really taken the time to digest it in full. But Essendon were just getting runs for the defensive 50. They were able to lock the ball in the forward half once they got there. But then Mason Wood showed up again, had a couple important intercepts that led to goals from Jack Higgins and Jade Gresham to ran back out to a two-goal lead. Then Marcus Windhager got Mason Redmond holding the ball. I think that was really it at that point when it got out to three goals with under nine minutes left. Redmond was just some really avoidable errors in this game. A couple 50s, that free kick against him there. Really, you could just define his game by a couple Masons if you really want. Mason Woods' awareness and execution versus Redmond's just lack thereof. Ended up being St. Kilda 14-8-92, defeating Essendon 11-8-74. Did it really feel like a three-goal game in the end? I, I guess it felt like St. Kilda won by more with just how well they started and finished. It was just that one patch there in the fourth where the game wasn't on their terms. Essendon obviously lost this game by getting off to a slow start and then running out of gas after making a pretty nice comeback, but I want to look at this just through a more positive lens from both teams that Essendon were able to get back in it instead of get absolutely killed. Oh, Brad Stott was deservedly praiseworthy of his side for that, and when they did get in the game, they created opportunities from pressure and from the resulting turnovers. Again, that's something of which every team is capable, and Essendon capitalized on those opportunities. And as for the Saints, I mean, to blow a lead that big and then compose yourself and still win. And not only that, but to never fall behind just to let them tie it and no more than that. That's really impressive for any team. I should also mention the last two times Ross Line and St. Kilda were 3-0, and they made the grand final. And the Saints are atop the ladder at the end of round three with a percentage of, yes, 150.3. The script almost writes itself. I don't know if, how much of this is going to last. It's fun while it's going, though. But I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying watching them. I actually get to sit there and think, hey, I'm excited to see St. Kilda play. Which, I mean, we were excited to see them a bit in 2020 and the start of last year, but not to this extent. In 2020, we didn't know much of anything anyway. Also, just to think that the Saints are doing this with how decimated their forward line is. No Max Kane, no Tim Membry, Jack, 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 Hayes isn't in, so it's been even more on Rowan Marshall to get stuff done, and they've more than risen to the occasion. You know, I joked with you, Ethan, before the season started about the Saints dropping the uh, Together We Rise hashtag and just going with Saints footy, almost as like a concession. And now it's like, hey, Together We Rise actually... Would have worked. Might have worked. Yeah. I mean, we'll see long term, obviously, but three though can't really lie. The record can't lie. It can. Uh, but no. in this case, I don't think it does. How the performances the Saints have put on week in and week out thus far? How many games would you have expected him to win at this point? I would have said like one, maybe. I think this one against Essendon. If even that. 
They got Gold Coast round four. Then it picks up. Then it picks up. Collingwood and Carlton in back-to-back weeks. Collingwood in the... Gather round. And then they got Port round seven. Don't sleep on that. Again, my, my thing with them is I don't think they can play much better than they have so far, even if they can get healthier. But this is already like, more fun than anything I would have expected them to have this year. And they should just... You know, if you're a Saints fan, don't worry about how sustainable it is and just, like, enjoy the ride for now. Yeah, enjoy this while it's going on. Yeah. Look at the top stats for St. Kilda. Brad Crouch had the most possessions. He had 32 disposals, had eight clearances, and 547 meters gained. But Mason Wood was the one that really led things from the middle half forward. A goal from 27 disposals, 11 marks, 9 intercepts, and 592 meters gained. To think that he would be this much of a successful full oval player, a few rounds running just kind of boggles my mind. Jackson Clara, 26 disposals. Sev Ross, 24, nine tackles and 497 meters gained. Sev Ross has always been a player that I've tended to notice for St. Kilda one way or the other, and it's usually for pressure-related reasons or just ridiculously long kicks. Less of the latter in this game, though. Ryan Burns with 23 disposals. Jade Gresham kicked 1-1 one, one from 23 and gained 485 meters. Rowan Marshall had 19 touches and just held his own against Sam Draper and the Ruck, which is hard enough on its own, especially when you're the guy. No support like Ryder or Hayes. I still think it would have been so funny had Patty Ryder ended up factoring into this game for Essendon. I kind of wanted it. And then Callum Wilkie, 90 disposals, 13 marks, 11 intercepts. Look, he's got to be a clubhouse leader for, for an Australian jacket in defense, right? Yeah, I mean, it's only been three games, but he's been focal in all three. Yeah, if if you were to make those sorts of things now, he would be way up the list. I think I forget who it is that is doing like a rolling all-Australian team, but they've got to have Wilkie in it. And I don't know how Campbell Round didn't have Wilkie in his team with a round. He had Alex Keith over him. I mean, Alex Keith was good, but that's... Leaving Wilkie out is a mistake. All right, for Essendon, future cat Darcy Parrish. A goal, 35 disposals, 507 meters. Could really use him now instead of in these hypothetical scenarios. Look, he's a Geelong kid. Expect it to happen. Oh, I do. But I just, I'd rather have him now. Uh, Jake Kelly, 29 disposals, 16 intercepts, 11 marks. Ethan always confuses Jake Kelly of Essendon and Josh Kelly of GWS. Guess what? They play each other next week. Nick Martin, a goal, two behinds, 28 disposals, 476 meters. Massimo D'Ambrosio, 27 disposals. BT is still shocked that he has a family. Wow. Zach Merritt, 25 disposals. Dylan Shield, two goals, 22 disposals, eight tackles, 476 meters. And Jordan Ridley, 21 disposals and 14 marks. I think Ridley has been their most effective defender to start this season, whereas it was Brandon Zerk Thatcher at the start of things last year. I mean, obviously, Zerk Thatcher's bagged up, but good just actual pure defensive signs from Ridley. And in terms of success on the forward end of things for Essendon, Shield, Archie Perkins, and Jai Caldwell all had two goals. Good to see Perkins continuing in his progression. Hey, new ad! As always, you can find us on Twitter and on YouTube at Americans Footy. You can find me individually at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. You can find me individually at Castle Media. And you can find Grian sitting right next to me. He's also on Instagram at Catman Grian. 
Ethan's hands just happened to be another couple of grinds toys. I understand now, just from having grind in the room, why you have so many bite marks. I mean, most of those are from clipping him, but I'm, I just want to appreciate that the new ad still has that new ad smell. Yeah. Just like Ross Lyons still has that new coach smell. No new coach smell in Showdown 53. In fact, I think Ken Hinckley might really be starting to reek after the way this one turned sour for him. Reminder that he has coached the most games in VFL-AFL history without reaching a grand final. I just want to start off by saying this was a great game in a round that had a lot of stinkers, especially the first couple. You and texted me at one point asking about like this concept of, you know, how to give out points after some of these games where like maybe neither team deserved four points or you could kind of split them up. Like give Carlton two and a half and the Giants maybe half a point. Or if you could do it like, you know, some rugby leagues where you get points for winning by more than whatever margin or for scoring X amount of tries or whatever. I wouldn't want to go over four points for a game though. Well, this was a game that deserved more than four points because despite the lopsided final margin and the run that the game ended on, this was really fun. So how do you, how do you want to go about this? Do you want me to just give the final score or should I just, I'm not sure how many people tuned into this one because it wasn't on free to air TV. It was only on Fox footy and it went up against the Saints 150. So, I mean, Go in depth with this one. I, I love the pace of this game from the beginning. It actually had some kicking accuracy. Just have at it. This is your game, Ethan. Well, we'll start with the final score. Port Adelaide, 13-8-86. Defeated by Adelaide, 18-9-117. Just the Crows' second win of the last six away showdowns for them, I believe. This was up until about the midpoint of the fourth quarter. A super tight, high-flying, back-and-forth game. Just incredibly fun. Niger team had led by more than 17. Port led 37-31 after a quarter, where the teams combined to kick 11-2. They were dead even at 57 at half, and the Crows led by three after three. And at that point, you know, start to think, ooh, Adelaide's been a little bit wasteful on some of these kicks. I mean, that was definitely the fee with their first two rounds. And it was frustrating seeing what kind of forward stock they have. We know what Isaac Rankin could do at his best. We know what Josh Rochelle, uh, we think we're starting to really see what Josh Rochelle's ceiling is. And we know what Riley Philthorpe could do at his best. We saw it on debut when he kicked five. Um, How many did he kick in this one? Five. Ah, welcome back. I love when I'm right. And we've been right on Riley Philthorpe. He should be in there all the time. He's big, strong, and able to score in a variety of ways instead of just take, mark, kick, ball. Amazingly, two of his first 28 AFL goals, he kicked over his head. He did that again here, and I was super excited to see that. It was like a more excited version of that sort of Leo DiCaprio pointing at the screen thing where it's like, hey, we've seen this before. Only difference is that first time it was the winner in Cairns. But yes, he's good. He shouldn't be playing behind Elliot Hemmelberger behind anyone at this point and even though he only had 11 touches they were nearly all meaningful and he did a couple little things right as well that may have not necessarily gotten recorded on the stat sheet that goal was the fourth goal of the game and that was just and that was with 12 and a half minutes still left in the opening quarter so you had back and forth action 
great goal kicking. Like I said, Crows were wasteful in that third quarter, and it felt like that could have been the sort of thing to do them in. Yet for a while, I had just thought to myself, like, man, this feels like a game the Crows should win. And I thought that for a while as I was more peripherally watching this game. Obviously, I was covering more of the Saints Bombers game, but Adelaide were controlling the ball for long stretches, double ports uncontested marks at the half, and all over the ground, I just think they were better off in a lot of 1v1s. And the courage of the young guys was showing. How about Michael Lenny, what he did? He got absolutely ran the fuck over. Cleanly, but run the fuck over by Tom Marshall. And he got back in there pretty quickly. And he has been really important these first three games. I've noted really from the beginning that he has this knack for starting rebound play. And with the speed and accuracy that the Crows do have in the middle, it's been really refreshing to see a healthy Rory Sloan kind of helping some of those connections along rather than just Rory Laird and Wayne Miller having to do the Lions' share of it. Or the Crows' share, I guess. But yeah, great back-and-forth high-flying game. Awesome crowd. I mean, the hill behind the north goal was absolutely hacked. Like, no room to move. Just under 50,000, I think. Just phenomenal atmosphere. Every seat filled all the way up to the top. Everything you want to show down to be. Well, maybe except for Port fans. So at one point in the second quarter, Port led 55-38. Adelaide pulled ahead 80-71 to on Phil Fork's fourth, where he couldn't mark in the goal square, but Lockie Jones decided, You can have it. Say thanks. And I love Riley just pointing at him afterwards. Just like, you did that. But Port turned it right back around. It had been a quiet night for Jason Horn Francis, but... He set up Orazio Fantasia, and then Sam Powell Pepper made just what had Port one would have been such an iconic play. He gets his pants pulled down, not like all the way down like Brandon Zerg Thatcher, but far enough that it was noticeable. Oh, yeah, he's just pulled him back up. He's just like, shit, I'm still in the plate. No, Panth, you must stay up. He couldn't mark a kick from Travis Boat, but he managed to corral it and then score on the left snap. So Fork go up 84 to 80, and then they uh they got outscored 37 to 2 the rest of the way. It was a great play by Isaac Rankin to set up the go-ahead goal. Obviously, most of what Rankin does is in the forward 50, but he stripped Tom Clurry, kept the play alive along the boundary, and then eventually Lachlan Gallant set up Lockie Murphy. The Lockies at their best at because of course it's Lockies. Then you had a Bad call go the Crows way where Lockie Jones didn't get paid when Isaac Rankin pretty clearly threw a ball. And then a fumbled throw in by Willem Drew allowed Taylor Walker to make one of his few plays in the night. He crumbs to Rory Laird for a goal. I get a bunch of fantasy points. Not that, not that it ended up mattering, unfortunately. And it was just the Crows were exploiting mistakes. And from there, you had a Rankin right snap with 648 left to put him up 14. And that felt like, all right, it's not completely done because we've seen late three goal comebacks in this matchup in this round. Phil Thorpe's fifth had to have been the Sharpie, though. Yep. He had a great snap around the post after a little setup for Rory Sloan with 526 left. And that was the game. Even then, he still got a little bit more. Chase Jones smothers a kick from Miles Bergman and ends up scoring. And then a failed fist by Lockie Jones ended up giving Rankin one last goal after the siren, which kind of 
was a bit anticlimactic because here's the thing with when you're already winning and you get a goal after the siren, kind of just like, what do you do as the fans? Because I love the visuals, of course, of, you know, crowd shot, siren goes, everyone's arms go up. But then it's just like, we won, but we're still playing and this kick doesn't exactly matter. But if I mean, I mean, every kick matters because of percentage, which I do like. I, I do too, but it's just like, we, it, it, it has no happens the celebration of it when it's supposed to be this moment. It has no bearing on the result itself. Like, you think back to when Tom McDonald had that one goal after the siren of the 2021 Grand Final. Everybody else on the bench had to wait to run onto the field to celebrate. See, in that case, that was kind of cool, though, whereas this is just kind of, you know, it was a game that was close enough that you were going to get a reaction at the siren, or at least it was close for long enough, not that it was close at the very end. But, like, I think of the visual of, you know, after last year's qualifying final, you know, they show all the Catsmans right behind the goal, right at the siren, and you kind of don't really get that, but hell of a win for the Crows. Um, Benjamin, when I asked you to go back and look at this. I wanted you to see stuff from a Port Adelaide perspective. Yeah, I, I did. I, I did really try to pay attention to things from a Port perspective. Obviously, love watching Paolo Pepper involved early on with the pressure of the tackling like you expect, had the first goal, and then Charlie Dixon was on his game early. He had three goals again, so he's had three each round. Clearly in in good form. Looks to have slimmed down as well. Just looks very onto things in general. The muscles are still ridiculous. I mean, the the bicep just looks thinner, though. I know you actually liked a lot of Scott Lysette's game. I think that was mostly just what he did in the center square. Yeah, because he wasn't just getting hit outs. He was getting clearances, but especially in the first half. His effectiveness declined a bit after that, but I really liked his performance, and it just had me thinking... They really missed it last year. Yes, they did, but honestly, Lysette was outdone by O'Brien as a ruck. O'Brien had 13 hitouts to advantage to Lysette's 7. Lysette has the lowest percentage of hitouts to advantage in the first three rounds of all rucks. I think it's at 24%. And he hasn't been marking at all, which you need from the tallest. He's had one mark in the first three games. So in terms of full field work, I've been actually disappointed with Lysette. And this is a team that has shown that they can work well with no true ruck. And I'm starting to question, you know, is Lysette part of a best bowl field 22 for a full game? He still is. Or I think more he needs to be. Okay. I'm not sure if he is right now, though. The best version of Port Adelaide includes him playing like he did in that first half. Okay. Fair. Fair. I like that. But the other player to who I really took attention was Willem Drew. Mostly for positive reasons again. No, not a huge possession getter, got 18, but tends to be a tagger, strong tackler, and I was really disappointed that he had the miss that he did from an easy angle with 16 minutes left. Port were down eight at that point, but that was one that I think both of us really noticed at the time and thought, oh man, that that one could really come back to bite him if it stays close. Unfortunately for Port, it didn't. They let themselves down in the end. Yeah, it was the first score after the fourth Phil Thorpe goal, the one that Lockie Jones gave up to him, but it ended up only being a, a behind, and it stayed a two-goal margin at that point. Yeah, the way the game kind of unraveled after Port briefly retook the lead, it ended up being largely forgotten. Port made enough mistakes that the Crows' punishment of them 
really hurt. I think the Crows were better punishers in this game and just making Port pay for their mistakes than the power were to them. And I think that really ended up being the difference in this one, along with Phil Thorpe and Rankin combining for nine goals. And Jordan Dawson was a, was a real full field threat in this one. Not a huge possession getter, but clearly good enough in the voters' eyes for the showdown medal. This is another topic of discussion. Yeah, he had no business winning that. I did note, I mean, in the first half in particular, I think he really set the tone with his forward half work, and he did get a goal. I did note that Matthew Nix was having him play all around the ground and just seemed to be working really well, and that was a really sharp adjustment. But, you know, the voting, it should have either been Isaac Rankin, who had four goals and 17 disposals, or Riley Philthorpe, who had five goals. Or, I mean, I guess Rory Laird with a goal, 26 disposals, 10 clearances. Okay, but but how do the votes go? Buckle up. Jordan Dawson with nine. Riley O'Brien with six. Connor Rosie with four. That makes sense, I think. Uh, Rosie was the best to field report. Just kind of used to that at this point. He had a goal from 28 disposals in 484 meters. He and Wines were running well together and kind of picking up where Drew and Dan Houston left off, going a little bit further back. Sam Powell, Pepper, and Isaac Reichen had three votes each. David Kaye, who was commentating and voting from the Melbourne studio, why the fuck were the broadcasters not in Adelaide for this? Would have been so much better for just the tone of the whole program. King was the only one to give Reichen credit for some reason. Joshua Shelley and Rory Laird had two votes each. Riley Philthorpe. Apparently, each goal is good for .2 votes. I, I, I don't get it. No, Jordan Dawson said I thought it was Philthorpe's medal. I appreciate the honesty. The only other staff line for Adelaide that we have written down here that haven't been noted yet, Mitchell Hinge had 21 disposals, and I think he's been one of the more solid guys on a team that needs a lot of help defensively. Ahem, my sleeper. I think Hinge being more sound at halfback has helped free up Dawson and has allowed Nick's that liberty of sending him more forward. So good on Mitch Hinge for that. Let me just go through Port's, some of Port's numbers that I didn't get to. I mentioned Dan Houston and Ali Wines were productive. They each had 21 disposals. Houston gained 640 meters. Wines with seven clearances. Oh, and Willem Drew was an octopus. But a couple team stats really stood out here. For efficiency inside 50, Adelaide were over 7% better in terms of disposal efficiency. And considering how much scoring this game had, that's a big margin. Adelaide had 54.2% disposal efficiency inside 50 to Port's 46.9. And Port also committed 13 more turnovers than the Crows, 64 to Adelaide's 51. And that just meant more opportunities for the Crows to punish. And they certainly made the most of those opportunities. And a couple of those turnovers were in their own goal square. Thanks, Lockie Jones. You did that. Also, the Crows only made 37 interchanges, but it seemed to work. I don't know. Does this make more sense to you than North's 18? Just by the sheer magnitude, I guess it does. It still confuses me. Hey, it worked. Just what a game. What a three and a half quarters, I'll say. The end soured things from a port perspective, but like, I mean, did not play a bad game is my point. They didn't play as clean a game as they needed to. And that was the difference. Both these teams are now one and two, and they both have some difficult tests next week. Port has the more glaringly obvious one. They're traveling to Sydney. But Crows and Frio start off the Saturday slate. And 
I think that ought to be really fun. Considering how much you thought about last year's game in the tub. It was a frustrating round one game for Frio, even though they got the win because of how wasteful they were in front of goal. And there was a lot of promise shown from that Crows team. And the younger pieces really showing up in showdown has me more encouraged already for this year than really all of last year for them. But those younger pieces need to keep playing main roles. Tex Walker clearly wasn't at 100%. He's not going to be around for much longer. Crows don't let the round three showdown be your peak again. They scored 117 with Walker hardly doing anything. And Darcy Fogarty out. The promise is there. Realize it. Now, about unrealized promise, um, you know what? Time for you to vent, Ethan. Yeah, this was really bad. So, Gold Coast 10, 13, Geelong 7, 12, 54. Way to go, David Swallow. Picking up a win in your 200th game. The first one-club guy with the Suns to do that. The Suns did not play well. Jack Lacocious played well. Actually going up forward and having a positive impact for the second game in a row. Yeah, the things I noticed that were actual positives from a Suns perspective. They're a pretty short list, which tells you just how bad the Cats were, but yeah, Jack Lukosius was legit, and Bondigal from 62. Took Miller, I was just blown away by his ability to hit teammates with really long kicks right on the money. Also, Matt Rowell needs the ball more because I, I know he does a lot as a tackler, but it seems like every touch he has such a good possession. Like, this is a guy who you need to funnel your game through because he will make things happen. To have him be kind of that tertiary carrier after Miller and Anderson, that's fucking scary. I do think Anderson played an especially great game. He was he was just kind of there. Then Raul made up for him. And I think Darcy McPherson's awareness is terrible. There was a goal he gave away by getting tackled close to his own goal square, but... He did a nice job on Tyson Stengel. Stengel was too quiet. Basically, Geelong had their second goalless quarter of the season, which was the second quarter of this game, which is hard to do with all the offensive weapons on this team, including new father Jeremy Cameron. Yeah, Cameron kicked 3-3, which normally would be fine, but the way the rest of the team's been playing, he really has to put everyone on his back, and he just played a good game instead of great. Cats trailed 27-24 at halftime. Yeah, this was ugly for it to be that low of a score. Kind of says a lot about this game. I was glad that I was focusing on the Ds and the Swans. Got the first goal of the third, and I'm thinking, all right, this is going to be better. Here we go. Finally start to define themselves, and then they, they didn't. They pretty much just spent the whole rest of the game behind, and... Got outscored 26-14 in the fourth quarter, which makes it look not as bad as it was because they got a couple of late goals after getting down by as much as 25. Unfortunately, this is one of those rare lose when Gary Rowan scores twice games. He was in the sub role and actually did pretty well in it, but he had to sub in for Sam DeConing, who had this massive bump on his head near his eye because he... Went up for a ball and ended up getting a lot of Nick Holman. Should note that that means that Gary Rowan falls to 46 and 11 when having kicked two goals at AFL level. But really just the common theme throughout this game was 
Geelong looked like they were playing at least a man short, if not more, because they were so slow and they were always outnumbered at every spot. You'd think like, okay, is are they just playing with like 16 guys instead? Like, what the fuck is going on? Pretty much everyone looked slow, flat-footed, in a lot of cases, uninspired. And I don't want to get into the intangible stuff about, oh, captains or this and that, and how much more important Selwood was, because I don't know if having a captain say the right things really is that much of an impact. But they look old, they look slow, they look bad. Um, real quick, I'm going to run through the entire roster from Sunday's game and just give a quick little individual review of each player. Sometimes these will be like two words. This will not take very long, and it will just give you a sense, if you didn't watch this game, of how bad things were. Margot O'Connor, eh. Sam DeConing, sucks that he got hurt. Zach Tui looks ready to retire. I still don't think his head's right from that knock a round or two ago, but I want to see him drop for next round. Isavarada Galea gives away too many frees, still has a lot of upside. Tom Stewart, couple of really bad kicks, but overall a net positive. Zach Guthrie, mediocre. I wish he was the biggest problem like he was at times a couple years ago or last year. Isaac Smith, okay. Max Holmes, can't hit anyone on a kick that's like 10 feet from him. He airmailed Brad Close on one that just was really bad. Mark Blitzovs, you know he's not a good kick for goal, and unfortunately he had to take a couple. That's just the one part of his game that's missing. Tyson Stengel should be another bad game or two away from getting dropped. I thought Eddie Betts was really just there to keep him in line off the field, but maybe he needs some more on it as well. Jeremy Cameron basically has to be God instead of just be really good. Brad Close, I love you, but you should be dropped right now. I know that playing him so far forward doesn't help, but he looks slow, flat-footed, uninspired. Wait, he should be one of the fastest players in the entire league. Are the sleeves weighing him down? It has nothing to do with sleeves and everything to do with him just not being involved in the game. Brian Myers, actually pretty decent. Always cops flack just because of him just standing out one way or another, but I don't think anyone had anything negative to say about him from this game. I saw a couple things in our comments, but not objectionable. Tom Hawkins, clearly still playing hurt. Tom Atkins, he should probably be on the verge of getting dropped. John Seglar, it's time to retire. Cam Guthrie, the numbers looked a lot better, but he still was very flat-footed, slow, and even if he wasn't turning the ball over, he was setting guys up poorly. Patrick Dangerfield, not bad. Low impact to the fourth, though, and that stands out. Tanner Roon, playing out of position, doesn't look comfortable at all. Jack Bowes let Ben Lawn spin away from him and had an easy goal. Jed Views, subpar. Ollie Henry vanishes for way too long. Yeah, that, that, that didn't take long at all. And the fact that there's so little to say is kind of damning in itself. Are the Cats just failing at a new game plan? I don't know why you even needed a new game plan. It's not like there was anything that changed the rest of the league. Were they, were they worried that they were going to become too predictable, maybe? Like what happened with Melbourne last year? Well, they're definitely not predictable because all three losses have been completely different. But what I would do going into next week, I want to see that 
headline, you know, Jawan have swung the axe with six changes ahead of the Easter Monday clash with Hawthorne. I want to see Atkins, Brune, Seglar, Close, Guthrie, Tui, all dropped. I know that's not going to happen. I know Guthrie's still going to be in there. I think Atkins, Close, and Tui will still be there as well. I think Brune might be, but he needs to be in an actual middle of the ground role instead of on the wing. Like, this is the most obvious solution, and we're calling it out from a mile away. We're calling it out from thousands of miles away. Brune and Holmes just switch roles. I would also consider dropping bows. This is definitely making me appreciate Jack Henry and Mitch Duncan, but I would try throwing in some young guys, you know, just like Arthur Jones provided a spark for the Bulldogs. We'll talk about Jacob Van Royen in a bit, but um, I'd like to see, you know, whether it's Mitch Nevitt or Ollie Dempsey or I don't know how far Jai Clark is from being AFL ready, but a Get lot needs to change here. Just something new. And I mean, Duncan should stabilize the midfield, especially defensively, and he could be ready to go for Easter Monday. I hope he is for the Cats' sake. Even if he he does, guess what? He's 31. This group that didn't look too old last year looks really old right now. I want to see Brandon Parfit in for a full game. I think back to round one against Essendon last year and his performance in particular, where they were just blowing past guys. And now they look like the slowest team we've ever seen. Like, this is objectively not fun to watch, no matter who you're a fan of. Like, even if you hate this team and you want to see them fail, this is not an enjoyable brand of football to watch. Also, a team that never gave up big numbers to an individual goal kicker after Easter Monday last year is giving up four to five goals to an individual every week. And yeah, Jack Lacoche has played well, but you've got to find a way to stop him stop whoever that guy is from absolutely going off. You know, whether it's Charlie Kernow last week or now Lukosius, you know, you've got to find a way to put a cap on whoever it is at like three goals or maybe if they hit a ridiculously tough shot for, you know, it's, I mean, I mean, Lukosius did hit a ridiculously tough shot for his fourth. Yeah, but at some point you've got to find a way to latch on and make sure that that guy doesn't define the game. And that's something that, again, it only happened a couple of times all of last season. Oh, by the way, speaking of forwards, the biggest reason I think Tom Hawkins isn't healthy is because we only saw once where he was able to, like, break free from a man, come closer to the kick, get open and secure it. He's looked a step slow all season, and that's kind of the more analytical way to really see that. I don't know if he needs that much more time to sit at this point, but, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, he should probably not have played round one. Looking at this game from a bit of a Suns perspective, did a good job at limiting Geelong from stoppages. I mean, Cats did themselves no favors, but limiting him to one point for stoppages is impressive enough. You know, enough clearances for Tuke Miller leading the way to get the ball out of dangerous spots when it was in Geelong's part of the ground. Obviously, love the work from Jack Lukosius and Matt Rowell. And also just nice to see a couple of the players that had really bad injuries near the middle of last season get back into form. Lockie Weller with a particularly productive game, leading the way for the Suns with 29 disposals and 693 meters gained, and Will Powell having a positive impact in his first game back as well. I would still bring Caleb Graham in. I would as well. Ben Long had that one really nice play with the spin move to get away from Jack Bowes, but I don't see him as being a long-term answer. No pun intended. Oh God, that was actually terrible. No, not intended at all. Wow. Hell. But yeah, Lukosius a week after kind of getting ripped on first crack for looking 
totally uninterested in playing defensively in particular to go out there with five, two and 12 score involvements. I mean, that really looks like a good spot for him. It also makes him less of a defensive liability. So Stuart do good on you. Hey, that rhymes. Other sun stats to note, Darcy McPherson with 24 disposals, 10 intercepts, nine marks and 509 meters gate. We ripped on him a lot last year, whether it was on this show or privately has definitely been more productive these first couple weeks. Again, he did have that major derp where he got tackled by Gary Rowland to give up a goal, but he also did a good job defending Tyson Stengel. But like, if you're doing his ratings for a video game and there's an awareness rating, it's it's not going to be high. Meanwhile, two Miller's awareness should be sky high. Only 20 disposals, but seven clearances and just the tone setter that we expect him to be. And for him to have a couple of younger pieces that are able to run alongside him just makes me more hopeful that the Suns can realize their potential within this next year or two. Because Took deserves to play in September, and not just because 2020 was 2020. Stats for Geelong that are worth going through. There aren't many, but Tom Stewart, 29 disposals, 13 marks, 11 intercepts, 563 meters, just a couple of uncharacteristically bad short kicks that proved pretty costly. Cam Guffrey, 28 disposals, but again, just not operating at the speed that you need. When I think of Cam Guthrie, I think of him kind of sweeping around guys. And right now, he doesn't look like he has the juice to do that. Isaac Smith, 23 disposals, 11 marks, 468 meters. Pafford Dangerfield, a goal, 19 disposals, 621 meters. The more he runs, the better. And Jeremy Cameron kicked 3 3 on 15 disposals with eight marks. And if. Like, I know the Brownlow system, you know, everyone loves their midfielders. It's all but impossible for forwards on losing teams to get much recognition, but I would think he got votes against Carlton, and you could make a case for him to have votes in all three games. I mean, that's the kind of performance that'll get, that could get you, like, toward the players' MVP. They're more willing to give it to forwards than the umpires are. So I'm glad I was looking at Belbert and Sydney instead of that Gold Coast Geelong abomination, and it was a collective abomination for the most part. Yeah, like Gold Coast did not deserve four points out of this game either. What did they deserve? One and a half? Maybe two. And Geelong negative three. You know, there's like, you know what? Yeah, let, let's go over four and a half in this one. Geelong negative three. See, when you look at like how to distribute the points for a game, like we had kind of hinted at earlier, this, this game would not deserve the full four points, whereas Showdown deserved more than four. But Melbourne and Sydney. This game ended up being defined by Melbourne controlling the first and fourth quarters to a major extent. These led 37-9 to after the first quarter. The Swans had the first inside 50s but couldn't find the final kicks. And then Melbourne were getting connections. They were getting behind the Swans' defense far too easily. And Jacob Van Royen was factoring in on his debut. His first touch was an assist to Alex Neal Bullen for the first goal. And Melbourne's second goal was Van Royen's first. They weren't saying Rue, they were saying Rue-er. That's, that's low-hanging for it at this point. We've made the joke before. But Melbourne's pressure was evident across the ground. And even as Christian Petraka was caught a couple times for holding the ball, the Melbourne connections were really getting through. They were hitting shorter targets with a lot of accuracy. And, you know, that's very much hasn't been Melbourne's thing. These past couple of years, they've mostly been going for longer targets, and especially on the wings, but you could tell that in round one, they were really 
tried to vary their movement. You can even tell it from the preseason if you watch that against Richmond, which I did. And and really, they fully played their way in the bookend quarters. There was a questionable descent 50 that was given against Will Hayward after he was called for a push to the back tackle. Probably was complaining that Alex Neal Bowen wasn't called for a throw. But these were getting the runs that you'd expect him to get. Middle quarter Swans managed to work things back into their favor for a bit. Jill and Marty had started inaccurately, but was getting into the game in a couple other ways. Handballing to set up a couple chances. The Swans have been dominating center clearances from the beginning, but it hadn't translated to scores for a while. And their last kicks had let them down. But once we passed really the midpoint of the second quarter and Buddy got his second goal, making it 1,051 for his career, six shy of Doug Wade for fourth all-time. Then the Swans really managed to zone in. They got to the half down 15, which is not bad considering the kind of start they had. The, the second quarter was five goals to three in favor of the Swans. Coming out of halftime, I expected John Longmire to have made the right adjustments, and he did. Seemed to stress the Swans' forward pressure, and they turned that on from the third quarter. They, they started a little bit in the second quarter through James Robotta, but it seemed like more of a team thing in the third. They were forcing forward 50 stoppages, and they ended up drawing it back all the way to a six-point game after a Nick Blakey behind. They were still somewhat wasteful in front of goal. I noticed Blakey moving forward a bit more than usual during some of those stretches, and it seemed to work pretty well. Yeah, it did. Almost like it's like what Brad Close should be doing. Only difference is Blakey's taller. The thing is, I always think of Blakey as kind of like leading the way out of the back. Also, when I did start watching this game, I noticed James Robottom being all bandaged up, which, with how he plays, just makes sense. Exactly. But there was a miss. There was a miss from Blakey after a couple from Franklin. And once Melbourne started getting rebounds again and they got a couple free kick goals, then I started thinking back to those misses as, you know, being the last things that the Swans could have afforded. They were they could have been able to draw even, if not take the lead, had a couple of those kicks been more accurate. And then from the end of the third on, with one goal for Charlie Spargo and then Kate Chandler getting his third. Yeah, Chandler has really filled the void left by Kazi Pickett in these last couple games, as I expected he would. The D's really ended up controlling the fourth quarter. It was a seven goal to three fourth, and they were just a more accurate full field kicking team. And that was very evident. And by the time the fourth came around, they were also doing that, you know, center clearance goal, center clearance goal thing that we'd come to expect from them. This looked like the 2021 Demons. Now, the fourth quarter is the one part that I really watched closely, so I don't have the full game to go off, but... But the fact that they were able to to do that in the fourth, that they had the stamina for it and were really able to control the game at the end, that's a great sign. And go figure, 21-8-134 is their highest score since 21-14-140 in that grand final. So Melbourne, 134 to the Swans, 12-12-84. And that margin was just really worked out in the fourth quarter. I'm super impressed by the D's forward group. And again, what Van Royen adds to that, I'm impressed by the younger and newer pieces for the D's in general. Lockie Hunter fits into that half forward group. And then in terms of true forwards, 
I already mentioned that I love what I've seen from Chandler. That third goal of his came early in the fourth quarter. That was the first goal of the final term, and that helped, and that really solidified things, I think. But he's had more of that, more goal-kicking opportunities with Kazi out, and I want to see Melbourne be able to keep working him consistently into that part of the game once Kazi's back. And had it not been for Van Roy, my highest praise probably would have been for Chandler, but JVR, three goals on debut, making connections when he's not the end of the chain. It's a big void that Max gone left, and Van Royen's come in and really already shown that he could play his own way at the top level. So it's going to be a bit of a list dilemma for the Ds once they get everyone healthy. Who's going to end up being the sub? Who's going to end up staying down altogether? I think it's going to really end up being some trouble for some of the less notable, maybe half-back in midfield pieces. Guys like Trent Rivers and Tom Sparrow could be on the fringe. And maybe, honestly, Kate Chandler would be a nice sub pick. Even though he's not even with the team anymore, Toby Bedford's going to be the sub. Even with the hamstring injury he's got? Yep. But I will say about this game, like from a non-joking perspective, Van Royen gives them just a new angle instead of the tired weed around stuff. Although Ben Brown, I know he ended up getting subbed out in this game. I like how he's played this year. And also just... The usual suspects in the midfield for Melbourne, Petraka and Oliver starring. Petraka with a point thirty-three disposals at 572 meters gained. Clayton Oliver had two goals from 25 and 7 tackles. Didn't expect Oliver's goal kicking to be more in focus early on this season than Petraka's. But great 150th game for Oliver. Already building up a fantastic resume and a whole lot more should be in store for him and Petraka going together. I just, I love that Everyone can score three goals on this team. It's not like someone's usually going to go put up like six, but everyone can give you three all at the same time. And it's like someone might get two goals in a row and you try to stop him and then someone else starts going off. And that's just what you get from this Melbourne team. So one of Ed Langdon has three behinds. His 24 touches were meaningful. It's just such a big difference from how stagnant they looked for a decent amount of last year, and then you see a performance like this that's more in line with the team they were in 2021. And they've already debuted more players this year than last. Two players from Melbourne got their AFL debuts in 2022. They've already debuted three this year. John McVie and Bailey Laurie in round one. JVR this round. The little bits of McVie I noticed in this game, solid. Yeah. Solid. Great scouting and development from the Ds, and I hope JVR cemented his place in the lineup for the long term. And not just the three goals and the good connections, but six tackles as well. From like the first couple minutes I watched, it was very obvious why he's already a fan favorite. Just an enjoyable player. And got a big mark over Pete Laddams too to get that second goal. I mean, always great to see Pete Laddams get punked. But you wonder why I was calling for this guy's debut for a while, because I'd heard so much about him toward the end of last season, and then once the Ds got knocked out in straight sets, that I went back and watched a decent amount of Casey's VFL flag run, and I looked at Van Royden and thought, okay, this guy's gotta be up soon, right? Right? Okay, thank God he's finally up, and look what he did. Only a couple of noteworthy stat lines for Sydney in this game, because Luke Parker and Chad Warner didn't do a ton. Callum Mills had 25 disposals, and Jake Lloyd had 21. Once again, Callum Mills is just really good at everything. 
those ended up being the top two in in the ranking points for the Swans. I mean, Ollie Florent with a decent game, 21 touches. Nick Blakey, noticeable, had a goal along with his 19, but none of them really stood out. And, you know, good team effort to in the second and third quarter in particular. Scoring was spread out, but he got two. A couple misses were pretty costly, though. I mean, the depth is still clear on this Swan side. They just need to figure out how to play full games sometimes, I guess. I mean, this was their first real test this year. I'll admit that. And hopefully it was a wake-up call for them. The concern is not that they lost. The concern is 134. And again, they're without Ryan Clark and Robbie Fox. I think Fox has a real impact there in particular. But they've got to be on their A-game for this next decent stretch here. Hosting poor next round. Richmond in the gather round. Then to Cardinia Park. And we know what Cardinia Park is like for opponents. Then Sydney Derby at Collingwood. Frio, North, Carlton, St. Kilda. The Lions after that. I mean, it's the Swans have the toughest schedule in the league any way you slice it. And they got to wake up quickly. I trust them to. We just got to see it. All right. Western Derby. I'm going to mostly leave this one to you, Benjamin, but... Before you get into how the game unfolded, I just want to say it reminded me a lot of the game last year that the Saints played at the Gabba. Oh, the one where they went down two or three rotations and lost touch pretty much because they were undermanned. Yeah, where it was like, man, it sucks that they aren't going to get to finish this game at full strength or at any sort of capacity where they can compete because they played quite well. Yeah, that was the round 13 game to which I think you're referring I remember Zach Jones was one of the players that went down in that one. I mean, I was genuinely excited for Western Derby this time, and I wasn't at all last year, so that's a good start there already. Luke Shuey had an excellent first quarter, involved straight away, winning in the middle versus Luke Jackson, which I didn't necessarily expect. I liked the look of Jackson B in the midfield right away for Frio. Jack Darling with with a couple early chances, made good on one of them. Oscar Allen with three goals in the first, including a really nice mark for one of them. I'm starting to see like, just how much he was missed last year. Thank you. I think I mentioned a little bit of that last week, but man, he's he's a top-tier forward. I hope that becomes a long-term reality. The Eagles led by one after the first quarter, and where Frio really excelled was Caleb Sarong being just dynamic in contests. Tight windows, he was accurate in handballs, and whenever there was some place where it looked like they were bottled up, he tended to be the one to, to get them free. Also, good work for Jai Amos early getting two goals. Did good work in general on Shannon Hurd this game. And you can see how much him bulking up, putting on some muscle has really helped with that. Because I don't think he would have been able to box out Bunga if he were in the same shape that he was last year when he came back. But the Eagles, they had good structure around the ball. They were actually fucking handballing enough, which is totally not Adam Simpson, so maybe they were doing it on instinct, or maybe Simmo realized what the fuck was going on, or one of the assistants spoke up. Somebody. Somebody figured it out. A few people figured it out, at least. Some great contests in both 50s, particularly in the 304 and 50. This was just such a fun game to start watching, but the Eagles train derailed pretty quickly in the second quarter. So you know how the injury situation wasn't all that bad for them through the summer and into the first couple rounds? It was not ideal with a couple of pretty significant and most importantly entertaining pieces out, but yeah, nothing compared to last year. 
Well, it arrived. Actually, I would say you still can't compare this to last year because I don't know if I've ever seen a team take this many hits in one game. The Eagles ended up with no bench in this game. It started when Luke Shuey strained his hamstring. It kind of happened out of nowhere, and he had been among the best of the first quarter. You knew that he was out immediately when he punched one of the walls as he came off and put on his warm-up shirt. At least he didn't break his hand while punching a wall. Seen enough dumbass baseball players do that. And it was no surprise that once Shuey went out, Frio were getting more 450 time. They were getting more wins in the middle, and that allowed Sarong to really do more work in contests, and they were getting numbers their way. A little bit after that, Jeremy McGovern ha- Jeremy McGovern suffered a major left hamstring injury. Sounds like it might be three months on the sidelines for him. It was already a bit fragile to begin with. I hope this isn't career-ending, but I would understand if it is. He still has a good impact when he's healthy, but it's a matter of him staying on the oval at this point. Dogger stretched things out to a four-goal lead at one point, but couldn't get it any further. It ended up being a 22-point margin at the half, so you already had two players down for the Eagles, and it just didn't get better from there. Alex Witherden got concussed in the third quarter, and later on, Jamie Cripps broke his ankle, or really had his ankle broken in a tackle. Didn't wasn't anything intentional, obviously, but just got turned badly as Alex Pierce brought him down. Oh, and Liam Ryan appeared to have hurt his knee as well. He was off the oval for a bit, ended up coming back in a bit of the fourth quarter, but it wasn't himself. And despite all this, despite having pretty much nobody to change out, West Coast didn't just remain competitive. They remained in the fucking game. They started the third quarter with all sorts of forward time. That was before Witherden went down and still a little bit after. But they retained the ball in the forward 50 a decent amount. They were getting some good runs through the middle. Elijah Hewitt coming on helped energize them. Jack Darling still had a good impact a lot of the time. And somehow it was only an eight-point game into the fourth quarter. And at three-quarter time, I was thinking, I'm going to be disappointed by a loss because the Eagles haven't been accurate enough. It was 10-8-68 for Frio to West Coast 8-12-60 at three-quarter time. From there, though, it was a six-goal to one-fourth quarter because the lack of interchanges ended up catching up with the Eagles. And after not really finding themselves in the third, Frio simplified their game in the fourth and took it to West Coast as they should have. Look, you can't be disappointed in the Eagles' performance. No, I, no, not at all. Be disappointed by the circumstances and the ramifications of the injuries, but it's like, what else could you do? That's as well as you could possibly play in a 41-point loss. This is not like Chris Paul hits a huge three to cut the lead down to 42, which I think I've referenced on here before because it's so fucking funny. How many views does that video have? Well, there are a bunch of them, but the top one, just a 12-second click of it, has over a million and a half views. But look at the first three quarters and maybe a little bit of the fourth. And the Eagles can take so much of that with how the younger pieces kept going about it. Noah Long has clearly moved past the first game. Jitterson has become a really functional part of kind of the midfield and half forward look. It's a shame that he's probably going to end up being a cat at some point because he's a Geelong grammar kid. I got to keep watching him and figure out just how good he could be. You ought to. Tim Kelly and Andrew Gaff were functional. The older pieces still did their job, but I just am excited about the younger part of the list for the Eagles between Long, Hewitt, Allen, Rising Star nominee Ruben Jinby. It has finally happened. 
Allen was the previous Rising Star nominee for the Eagles four years ago. I always think it should be pronounced Ginby, but I like how he plays. Does he need like some sort of nickname? Is he like Juice because of gin and juice? Eh, we came up with something, but that, that, that's a start. All right. Another active tackling game for him. He had eight. The team played this game the right way, and it's a shame that they got so bagged up in the process. And Frio found themselves late. I'm far from convinced that they put up their best effort, but good for Luke Jackson to get involved a couple times. He needed a game like this, regardless of opponent. Got a couple goals and just looked like he was more into things. Look, the Eagles grew as champions from within. All right, referring to this game in particular, it's more than winning. It's West Coast magic, and it's just beginning. Through all this, the top performer of the game was Caleb Sarog, who was a runaway Glendinny Allen medal winner. So, unlike the other big crosstown rivalry, they gave the award to the right person. Oh, fucking absolutely. I mean, I could I could pencil him in for the three votes in the middle of the second quarter. Yeah, he had 35 disposals, nine score involvements, eight clearances, eight tackles, and gained 697 meters. So along with 16 contested possessions and was super clean through him, to have a disposal efficiency above two-thirds when you're getting into that many contests is really impressive. James Aish, 31 disposals, 584 meters gained. Andrew Brayshaw, one of his better games after a bit of a slow start to the year. A goal, 28 disposals, 11 clearances, and 486 meters gained. I'd say it was more one of his better halves. The second half he really got into it was slow early on. Could really notice because he was my fantasy captain, and I was like, man, these points are not adding up. I mean, I won the matchup handily, but I can notice, like, Brayshaw had dipped a bit, and he definitely wasn't as noticeable early on, and that's why Sarong's performance was even more magnified. I mean, you're going to win the matchup handily if your opponent's not keeping an updated lineup, which seemed to happen this week. At the same time, in our 12-member draft league, I had the highest score this round, over 1,700. Sam Schwitkowski, I, I don't have much of a transition back to this, but um, he needed to play better, and he did. Two goals on 21 disposals, 10 score involvement. He's also on my fantasy team. Sean Darcy's not, is he? No, he is not, but I would have made him my captain for this game. A goal, two behinds, 20 disposals, 10 score involvements, and 52 hit out. 128 AFL fantasy points. He was one of the highest scorers in the week because Bailey J. Williams is Bailey J. Williams. In hit outs were 69 to 16 in Frio's favor. Nice! Lockie Schultz, a goal, 19 disposals, and 9 score involvements. The parts of this game I got to watch more closely, he was very active. I think Schultz is just an underrated player in general because the attention goes to Brayshaw and Sarag, and especially now that you've got Jackson to look out for it, and Michael Walters having always been there for Frio when he kicked 4-1 for this game, his first game in the full 22 this year. I think Schultz just kind of slips under the radar far too often. Hayden Young, a rare goal, 18 disposals, 478 meters gained, and Alex Pierce had 10 intercepts. That Hayden Young goal was the product of a really fucking stupid 50. Liam Ryan was basically on one knee at that point and was called for 50 for being too slow to get onto the mark. It's one thing if you didn't get to the mark and you're on both your feet. You could argue that it was because he was coming from a little behind Young as well, but come on. By the way, I just want to mention the Michael Frederick goal celebration. Oh, yeah, the backflip. The flip wasn't what impressed me. The landing on one foot. 
That's fucking insane. And the fact that he did that when the game had just been completely won already, just like, that is an asses in seats type of thing. Just like, hey, watch this young guy kick a goal and he might do a backflip. Sometimes you need a little showmanship, and he definitely had that. Eagles stat lines a note. Tim Kelly, two behinds, 33 disposals and nine score involvements. He's worked into things all right this year thus far. Andrew Gaff with 28 disposals. One eagle, Shannon Hearn with 27, 11 intercepts and 548 meters gained. Please don't retire yet. Jaden Hunt looked really solid in his first three games as an eagle. Another goal, 22 disposals and 482 meters gained. Dom Sheed had one, kicked 1-1 one, one for 22. Tom Barris, 21 and 10 intercepts. Ruben Jindy with 28 tackles, 6 clearances, and 1 Rising Star nomination. And Oscar Allen kicked 3-3 three, three from 12 disposals. His 3 goals were all in the first quarter, just obviously didn't get more opportunities as the game went on. The Eagles only made 50 interchanges, which, I mean, makes sense because of how they were limited in the last quarter. They had enough with like 9 or something interchanges in the last quarter, if that. Which are 9... Nine more than I thought they were going to have. It was before Ryan was ruled officially out. All right, those are the nine games. Let's finish up with some nominees. Ethan, what do you think of the mark of the week? Well, first off, let's mention the round two winner. That was Tom Papley, who went over Chad Warner and also kind of Finn McGinnis. I mean, clear winner. For round three, we've got Will Day from Hawthorne. He was able to push off Harry Sheasel's back. You had Ben King going over... Asadlo Radagalea and John Segler was also in front to kind of try to block things out. And then you've got Joe Lombardi jumping over Errol Golden on the wing. I mean, that's the winner. He completely cleared him. He may have hit Golden's hair. I think that was it. I don't know how Oscar Allen didn't get the nomination over Will Day, though. I mean, Allen had a headlong dive from behind Brendan Cox. Cox kind of got out of the way of it. Pierce was in close quarters, too, and Allen still got it. And got the goal off it, too. The winner's Joel Amarty, though. This is going to be the second straight week of Swan wins it, and there shouldn't be much debate. Once again, there shouldn't be. Round two's goal of the week winner surprised both of us. The voters gave it to Jamie Cripps off of a set play from a Jack Darling tap. Cripps kicked a 70-degree angle goal in on the full from 20 meters out while running toward the corner. I mean, it's an impressive kick in itself. We just thought Bobby Hill's overall play with that give and go from Jamie Elliott did a lot more to impress us. The round three nominees, Shea Bolton, we knew he'd get in there pretty early this year. He crumbed a drop, Darcy Cameron marked, spun and kicked on the outside of the boot from 33 meters. It's honestly getting to the point where that is nothing special for him. I mean, the spin was pretty early on the play. I guess if the spin had come a little later, Closer to the kick, it would have been cooler, but... Yeah, it was a nice goal. It wasn't like a shittiest to someone who's never watched footy to get them interested type play, but it was it was cool. You had Jai Caldwell off of a 450 stoppage. It was just a good kick to, at that point, level the scores. It was a 54-degree angle shot from 15 meters out. And oddly, I think the winner, this last nominee chronologically, is going to be a set shot. I don't like giving the nod to set shots, but when it's Jack Lacocious with a straight-up torque from 62 meters, I think he deserves it. That was the I'm-not-even-mad-that's-amazing moment for me. And, I mean, this thing made it through with ease. It was like, you go from, oh, okay, thank you for taking this, and oh, oh, okay, I, I, see, I see why you took it. And yeah, that's that's one where it's like, 
Got nothing negative to say. You earned that goal. I mean, Lukosius earned a whole lot of praise from his forward performance this round. All right. Now we end this with your thing, Ethan, with the main character of the round. And I think we actually have a few nominees for this one. Yeah, you've got Jamari Hagen for less for the five-goal performance to me and more for just the Nicky Winmar celebration. I mean, I think responding the way he did on and off the oval are both super valid reasons to make him a main character. And that he did it with, like, the first goal of the round. That was that was pretty sick. The St. Kilda Football Club as a whole is also nominated because they won their 150th anniversary game and put on a show. And then my nominee, the umpires, for being trigger-happy with 50s, particularly for dissent. I highlighted the three worst ones with Stephen Canelio that led the 50 there that led to the Jesse Motlop, uh to the Jesse Motlop goal that ended up giving Carlton the lead for good. The quick one to Will Hayward wasn't as bad, but the Liam Ryan one just still gets me because it was that Hayden Young goal that was really the Sharpie. I mean, the game was pretty much over, but still, it was just, that's a terrible call. But um, I'm going with Jamara because the implications there were so much more than just football, and the the photo of him pointing at his skin has gone all over, and I just thought it was really cool, and the way he spoke, and the way he represented himself, he did an awesome job, and, you know, he's in a position right now where he gets to speak for a lot of people, and speak to a lot of people, and just phenomenal work there. Even if it had just been the one goal, I would have picked him as the main character, for all the right reason. Yes, this is a time where the main character's absolutely awarded for a good reason. I, and I love that Nicky Woodmar was really appreciative of everything and brought up some good points from it. He he was involved in a really good conversation um, at the halftime of the, of the St. Kilda game on, on 7, where they talked about a whole lot of things if, with indigenous relations and really highlighting Hugel Hagen's uh, past couple weeks as just really, really being a great stand and him being such a good representation of the indigenous community. I hope Jamara keeps being as confident as he was then because I just want him to succeed. That's going to do it for this round three recap. Hopefully this does end up being a little bit shorter than the first couple. I think it will by a bit. We'll see by the time it's through the editing process. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy, me at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter, me at Castle Media and Grian at Cat Named Grian on Instagram. He is also sleeping right next to me, and I'm about to sleep too. I'm going to as well. We'll hit you with our round four preview sometime, hopefully early Thursday, all things considered. And it's going to be a more spread out round of this week because we've got Easter Monday. So I think we're going to be recording that round four recap right after that one. So you could be in a really fun mood for that. I want to be able to capture the raw emotion.